Praise the Lord. I am Rajat and you are listening to Biblical Demand Podcast where we discuss and answer difficult questions raised against the Bible, God and the Christian faith. In the Gospel according to Apostle John chapter 8 verse 32, Jesus said, "And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free." Amen. So let's get started. Welcome to Biblical Demand and today our guest is Dr. H Walton. It's a joy to have you here sir. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So let's begin with your story. Tell us about yourself. That how did you come to know Jesus Christ? I grew up in a Christian family, so I was exposed to the gospel and to the claims of Christ and to the work of Christ and to the Bible from the cradle, from my earliest years. And so I grew up with that knowledge, and I grew into the faith as I grew into new clothes every year. It was just how how I was brought up. So. Uh, I uh, accepted Christ at a young age, six or seven years old, and uh, has um, have advanced and grown in my faith since then. Great, praise God for that. So, how did you choose this particular field of Old Testament? How did this happen? Being raised in a Christian home and in the church, I was exposed to the Bible early on, and. at a at a young age when you encounter the bible you encounter stories you encounter the bible stories and all the people and places and things of that sort so i i learned all of that pretty early i knew the stories i knew the people i knew the places and so you could say i was an expert on the trivia of the old testament uh, as a kid because it was just how i was raised it wasn't any particular aptitude or merit on my part is just I was raised that way uh, but uh, so I enjoyed the old testament uh, from my youth uh, when I got time to go to college I thought well I really love the old testament but I don't know what to do with that I being a pastor or a missionary isn't going to help me spend a lot of time in the old testament so I ended up going to college and majoring in business and economics uh, it was just that's what the vocational test said I should do so I was compliant they it wasn't till my junior year that it suddenly occurred to me that there are people who teach old testament and the minute i realized that i said that's what i'm going to do uh, so uh, i ended up changing my direction entirely and i uh, went on to graduate degrees in old testament and uh, eventually ancient near east uh, all to pursue that particular direction wow that's so good to hear that praise god for that that uh god used you in this particular direction and led you this far so praise god for that so coming to this old testament thing so we read a lot of we know about jesus or about god from starting from the old testament till the new testament and bible keeps on telling us about the attributes and the characteristics of god so does the bible define god or does the bible tell who god is No, I would say it doesn't really do either of those things. Um, you know, the Bible itself tells us that God's ways are higher than our ways, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and therefore we have significant limitations just by virtue of being human. There's only so much of God that we can comprehend. So, to some extent, the Bible gives us insight into the nature of God. but it doesn't try to do a philosophical treatise or a systematic coverage 
to talk to us. It it's doing something else. In my view, what the Bible's doing is revealing how God has has plans and purposes and how he has carried out those plans and purposes through his people throughout history and throughout time. And we're supposed to understand enough of his plans and purposes that we want to be part of it, that we want to join his story. He's given us his story. That's not the same thing as giving a uh, an analysis of his personality or a doctrinal treatise. But he said, this is my story and this is what I'm doing. And I want you to be part of it. And I'm making it possible for you to be part of it. So in that sense, it's an invitation to join God's story. Uh, the example I use is that when I give out a course syllabus at the beginning of a course, uh, the course syllabus will have on it what the course requires, what its nature is, what are its objectives, what's its description, when are assignments due, uh, all of those kinds of things. In the process, it talks about the future, right? On March 4th, we're going to be studying this and that. Uh, and, but I'm not telling the future. I'm just telling my plan. And in some sense, the Bible is a little bit like God's syllabus for the course of life, for the course of history. Uh, here's what God's objectives are and what he plans to do. And he gives us enough information, like a course syllabus, enough information so that we can participate successfully. My students will read my syllabus and they'll say, when I read this, I can figure out a little bit, a little something about Dr. Walton. And they can. But I haven't written a syllabus so that they would know me. I've written a syllabus so they'd understand my plans and purposes and can participate in the course successfully. Yeah, wonderful illustration that. So basically, God, uh, Bible tells us a glimpse of God or some, um, would say, um, some spark that there is God and we are part of his plan and his story goes on from Genesis till Revelation, right? Right. Kind of, uh, this is what I've been doing, God says. And you've seen me at work here, and you can learn a lot about me by seeing me at work. Uh, but that doesn't mean everything's going to be clear about who I am and why I do what I do. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, I think when we'll uh, see face, to, when we'll see him face to face, then only we'll be able to. He will reveal us more of his glory, right? I think a lot more will be clear then. Not that we'll have answers to all our questions. I'm not sure we will, but a lot more will be clear. Yeah, man, that's great. So uh, uh, Genesis 1-1 starts with that um, in the beginning, right? So is it a beginning of the world or the beginning of God's creative works? I think it's the beginning of his story with us. Um, so... The the beginning, I don't think, is something that happens before the seven days. I think the beginning period is the seven days. So we could read it kind of expansively in the in the beginning period. Uh, typically, that Hebrew word that leads off the verse, reshit, uh, talks about a beginning period rather than a beginning point. And so in the beginning period, 
and that period is those seven days. So it's the beginning, beginning of God doing his creating work with his purposes in mind as he uh, brings order and organization to the world. And so I think that's what the beginning is. Okay. So it's the beginning, uh, as you said, that it's a beginning of his story with us or his, uh, you know, revealing himself to us. And it's about he and us. Right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So uh, moving on to this uh, on your book called uh, The Lost World of Genesis 1. So um, we see that serpent comes in and uh, he just uh, you know asks some questions to Eve and try to manipulate her so can we say that serpent or satan can take many forms in modern world as well as he took the serpents well i'm going to back up a step on that when i read genesis and try to understand how israelites hearing or reading Genesis would have thought, I'm pretty convinced that they would not have thought, oh, the serpent is Satan. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't have made that connection. They nowhere do make that connection. Throughout the Old Testament, there's no hint that the serpent should be considered Satan. And it gets even a little more complicated. You know, we have Satan as the name for the devil. Okay. Satan is a Hebrew word, but in Hebrew, it's not the name for a devil because the Israelites had no slot for a character like the devil. They have a character that they name Satan, although it's not a name, it's a job, a task, a function, a position in the book of Job, for instance. And that character challenges God's policies, but that character does not tempt or deprave or possess, or uh, it's not the chief of, of devils. It's, it's not that, that role. Satan, I know this is getting a little complicated, right? But Satan is the name that's eventually attached to that position once people have that position. But that doesn't happen until after the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, the character named Satan is a little bit different than what we think of when we think of the devil. And they did not think of the serpent as being that character, either by name, Satan, or by position, the devil. They would have thought of the serpent in very different terms than we are generally inclined to do. Hmm. Yeah, so can you explain it a little more for that? Sure. So how would have they thought about the serpent in the ancient world, right? That's a, that's a good question. How would have an Israelite thought about the serpent? If he didn't think of it as being Satan or the devil, what did he think? And for that, we have to think about their ancient world environment. Of course, that's one of the main things I do in the Lost World of Genesis 1 and the Lost World books. How would people think in the ancient world? And when we think about that, one of the suggestions that's been made about the serpent, and I think it's, it's one worthwhile thinking about, 
is that the serpent would fall into the category that we know from the ancient world called chaos creatures. Chaos creatures, uh, for instance, in the Bible, we hear of Leviathan. Leviathan is a chaos creature. In Genesis 1.21, the great sea creatures, uh, they're chaos creatures. Chaos creatures in the ancient world are not moral creatures. That is, they're not good or evil. Uh, just like a tornado or an earthquake is not inherently good or evil. It might be destructive, but you wouldn't say, oh, that evil earthquake or whatever. Okay, so it's it's not, it can't be defined in moral terms. And that's how chaos creatures were in the ancient world. They tend to be disruptive, just like a tornado or a an earthquake could be. So they tend to be disruptive. Uh, but they're not inherently evil. And what the serpent does in Genesis 3 seems to fit into that category. He's, he's a force of disruption by raising questions, by, by saying, well, have you thought about this? Is it really going to be that? Uh, that's sort of a typical kind of context. And we have these chaos creatures uh, in the literature of the ancient world playing a variety of roles. Uh, lots of times those chaos creatures have been domesticated by the gods, although there's still a little bit of a wild card. And of course, in Psalm, uh, Psalm 104, we hear about God creating Leviathan to sport with him. Now, Leviathan's domesticated, but he's still a chaos creature. So it fits into a kind of different category than we are inclined to think, those of us who aren't in that ancient world. So how did this chaos creature would speak like the human language that Eve could understand? How this serpent could speak such language? In, in the ancient world, chaos creatures typically are capable of speech. So again, that's how they would have portrayed them. That wouldn't have been a surprise to think of a chaos creature who was speaking. Because I think this, uh, when animals are speaking, we have seen in the, uh, I think in the Old Testament, when donkey was speaking, right, the human language. Numbers 22, so, yep. Yeah, so it could happen. Now he's that. not a chaos creature. That's a different situation. No, in terms of uh, human language, because I think he was communicating something. Yeah, in, in Numbers 22, Balaam's donkey is. But I'm saying that's not the same as the serpent. It's the same that both speak, but they're different kinds of creatures uh, in yeah. how an Israelite would have understood them. Okay, so you mentioned that uh, about the Israelites, that how they were interpreting the Bible. So in modern world today, um, so how should we interpret? It's from the Israelites' way because, for example, um, in today's modern world, homosexuality is as we consider is common and we consider it, it should be acceptable by everyone, but Bible prohibits it and says it's a sin. So how should we read the Bible from Israel perspectives or our modern day perspective? Uh, yes, <laughs> we have to do the whole, the whole range of it. My view is that we always should start with text in context. That means trying to read it as an Israelite would have read it, trying to understand the words as they would have understood those Hebrew words, uh, trying to understand the literature 
in its cultural context. And so we have to try to think like they do because God is inspiring his word through them. God's authority is vested in them. And that means we can't afford to ignore them and we don't want to neglect them. So we always have to start by trying to read text in context. Now, from that point, of course, the the living word can take on a life of its own. It gets reinterpreted over and over and over again, including in the New Testament and including in our Christian theology. And so we want to follow that process. We want to see what the New Testament does with Old Testament texts. We want to see what theology does with Old Testament texts. Okay, at the same time, we have to try to understand how those texts were working in the Old Testament context. Even though other people like New Testament authors or like theologians might do different things with them, um, we're mainly tied into the Old Testament context because that's where God's authority was set down. So I want to know what they meant by it. Now, at the same time, um, when we look at the law, we have to ask, was it legislation? And if not, what is it? For instance, you would find out that in the ancient world, they do not have formal legislation. Mm-hmm. They don't. They have they have legal uh, sense of what they should do. They have tradition. They have customary law. Uh, they have all kinds of ways that society would have been regulated. But they don't have a an official lawmaking body that makes laws and puts them into to action and then everybody's bound by them and court cases are based on them. They don't have that in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. So we have to ask this thing that we call law in the Old Testament. What is it? If it's not legislation, then we have to start thinking differently about it. Now, I've addressed all that at some length in my book, The Lost World of the Torah, because Torah is the Hebrew word that we often translate law. So I've dealt with that there. It's a it's a pretty complicated issue, but we try to straighten it out in that particular book. Now, some things that were therefore laws in Israel society, or rather the wisdom by which they lived. Again, it's not legislation uh, that might change in our society. Uh, they they dressed in certain ways. They had certain kind of clothing. They uh, would not mix linen and wool. Uh, there were all sorts of things that they had reasons for not doing. They wouldn't eat certain kinds of meat. That doesn't mean that those are biblical teachings that we have to continue to follow. Yet they are revealing something, and we have to figure out what. And that's what I work at in the Lost World of the Torah. Hmm. That's a that's a good uh, uh, explanation to this question. But the question remains uh, comes to this that you said we have to read from the Israelites' perspective, or we have to understand understand this these texts. But how the general public, how's a uh, a new believer? Because the Bible we have it's just a plain English text or a plain regional language. 
right? So should the people join seminaries to understand this more or how should we find resources that we should read this in this way and that's how you sh we should read about? That's, that's a great question. And 30 years ago, I would have had to say, boy, I'm really sorry, that information is not accessible. It's buried in technical journals. Half of it's written in a language that you can't read. And it doesn't always work very hard to help you understand your Bible in light of something like Babylonian or Egyptian culture. But that's changed a lot in 30 years. And I'm, I've been happy to play a part in all of that. So, for instance, today, believers can get a hold of something like this. The Cultural Background Study Bible. There we yeah. go. Okay. And a study Bible like this, all through it, get to a good page here. Ah. So, all through it, there's pictures, there's sidebars, and then all the study notes are all about the ancient world and ancient literature and manners and customs. And so a Bible like this can help people gain access to the ancient world. It comes in a number of different translations. This one's NRSV, but it comes in mm -hmm. NIV and even New King James. So this is a way to get access to that. I've also yeah. uh, written a book called the IVP Bible Backgrounds Commentary. Again, one volume, and you can get to a lot of that information. Absolutely. So all these resources are now accessible to the general public, and yes. they can buy such books and reference books, commentaries, and scholarly works is available on the internet as well. That's wonderful. So. Um, Again, coming back to the Genesis, that according to you, is Genesis 1 to 11 is mythical or literal? Because uh, since I'm up, uh, exposed to this intellectual side of Christian faith, I see the old earth creationism and young earth creationism. So how should we deal with Genesis 1 to 11, according to you? Well, according to me, we want to read it the way they would have read it. Are they thinking about the age of the earth? I'm not convinced they are. Um, does the Bible have a statement to make about the age of the earth? Some people think it does. I tend to disagree. I don't think it has anything to say about the age of the earth. Is the Bible even talking about the material aspect of creation? It's true that God created the material world, but I would say that in Genesis, that's not their interest. Their interest is the way that he ordered the world under his purposes and under his rule. That's a different kind of question and a different kind of answer. And so we have to try to figure out best we can, what is it that the Bible is doing? Now, I think it's a, a false dichotomy to say, is it mythical or is it literal? Uh, those certainly aren't the only two choices and they're not necessarily good words to use. Some people use literal as if they can read their English Bible and get a literal reading. But the fact is the Bible was not written in English. And if you want to read it literally, you have to understand Hebrew words. Uh, when we talk about reading literally, what we mean is we want to read it the way the author intended it to be read. That means if he intended it as a metaphor, we want to read it as a metaphor. If he intended it as a parable, we want to read it as a parable. And if he intended it as a historical account, we want to read it as a historical account. 
But for that, we have to be sure we understand what it is that the author intended. Uh, so literal isn't necessarily a helpful word because it still means we have to figure out what it's doing <laughs> before we can actually read it that way. Likewise, mythical is a problematic term today because lots of people have different interpretations or definitions, I should say, of the word mythical. To some people, mythical means make-believe, fantasy, fiction, and therefore that I shouldn't take it seriously. And certainly that's not what we believe about the Bible. But remember also that Babylonians did not consider their myths to be fantasy literature. They didn't consider them to be make-believe. Uh, for them, for a Babylonian or Egyptian, their myths were representing their deepest reality. So terminology, again, becomes a problem. And certainly now with a problem with the word literal and a problem with the word mythical and a problem that those are not even two good choices, let alone our only choices, it becomes a complicated matter. Now, in each case, I want to try to understand as best I can what the intentions were of the biblical writers and try to read it that way. Mm. Absolutely. That makes sense uh, also that we have to read in the way it was written. So Bible is, uh, I think you, you once said, Bible is written uh, for us, not to us, something like that. Correct. That's what uh, right? I say. So yeah. the Bible is written for us, but not to us. That means we have to start by trying to understand what it meant to them, to those for whom it was written or to whom it was written. Mm -hmm. And that should become the basis then for understanding what it means for us. Yes, absolutely. And so moving on to this uh, uh, question that Abrahamic religion, we read about the, uh, because I come from India, so we claim that our Hinduism is the oldest religion on the world. Okay, so we let's, we are not talking about the age of the religion. So, uh, what is the Abrahamic religion and how old it is according to the Old Testament uh, thing or how do you answer this question? It's, it's actually a complicated question. Uh, these days we refer to Abrahamic religion so that we can pull in Judaism and Christianity and Islam because they all track back to Abraham. And I get that. That's, uh, that is intended then to express uh, commitments to monotheism, because Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are three faiths that are committed to monotheism. So all well and good as far as that goes. Now, the difficulty is that um, we don't have very much information about what Abraham's faith would have looked like. It's interesting that when God comes to him and offers the covenant in Genesis 12, God doesn't say, let's get this straight. You need to be monotheistic. I'm the only God there is. No other gods exist. You have to worship only me. God never says that to Abraham. Abraham is coming out of a polytheistic setting. The Bible tells us that. So Abraham is not already monotheistic. Abraham is a polytheist, and yet God doesn't tell him there's only one God. God doesn't tell him don't worship using idols. Right? That comes hundreds of years later with Moses. 
where God says those things. Now, of course, we don't see Abraham using idols and we don't see Abraham worshiping other gods or even acknowledging them. But of course, the Bible is not trying to give us a full biography of Abraham. It's got a particular purpose as it develops the covenant relationship between God and Abraham. So the narrator in Genesis has his focus and he's he's driving toward his focus. That means there's a lot of things that he doesn't discuss. As a result, it becomes very problematic to try to define the religion of Abraham or the faith of Abraham because mm-hmm. we just don't have enough information. Um, certainly, eventually, the Jewish monotheism is launched through the covenant people. And the covenant people are those who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the covenant people are those who follow the Abra- the covenant that was forged with Abraham and then through Moses with Israel. Uh, so they're the covenant people, uh, and it's the covenant that drives them to the exclusivism that represents Israelite monotheism, and that then is picked up by Christianity, etc. But you can see that that's a little different than saying, oh, we know exactly the shape of the Abrahamic faith. You see the problems. Yeah. So, uh, because um, when we read about Abraham um, from uh, um, after Genesis uh, 11, uh, so is this monotheism concept, did it evolve or did it come after after the destruction of the Tower of Babel or uh, God could have used it before this Tower of Babel that monotheism is is something as you said that Abraham was a polytheistic but this monotheism arrived when Moses came and God told him that I am the Lord your God so it it could be the yes it could be the result of Tower of Babel or something it's not easy to try to demonstrate that even with the Ten Commandments as it was given at the time of Moses it says you shall have no other gods before me it doesn't say there are no other gods So again, even in the time of Moses, there weren't the explicit statements being made. Certainly, they were supposed to be exclusive in their worship of Yahweh. He was their covenant God. He was their king. He demanded their loyalty and their faithfulness. They were to worship only Yahweh. Technically, that's called monolatry, the worship of one God. Monolatry is a way you practice. Monotheism is a philosophical statement. And so Mm. uh, with Moses, monolatry is proclaimed. If you push back to Abraham, monolatry is all that we see, but we don't see very much. So it's it's hard to say. Polytheism uh, is the standard in the ancient world. And there's no evidences of monotheism outside of Israel when they finally develop it. There are a couple glimpses of that possibility in a couple periods in, well, one period primarily in Egyptian history, but it's not really the same thing. But the important thing is that monotheism and polytheism 
is not just about numbers, one God versus many gods. Polytheism has lots of gods, but most importantly, it has those gods in community. Uh, the ancient world has, has corporate identity, just like many cultures still do today. Their main identity is in their community. And people thought like that in the ancient world. Their community was their identity. And they thought of the gods that way in the ancient world. Community gave the, each individual god their identity by their place and status and posture and position within that community, that divine community. So they thought of the gods all kind of working together uh, to administrate the world. So that's a divine community. Now, the difficult move for Israel was that when you say there's only one God, okay, so what, is he doing everything? No, it, it, uh, what about all the jobs that gods have to do? Is this God doing everything? And, and how does this God have an identity if he has no community? See the trouble. They, they had trouble making that adjustment. It wasn't just the number of gods that they had trouble adjusting to. It was that community identity of God. Now, what's interesting in the Old Testament, God says, I don't have a divine community. You have no other gods before me. There is no divine community. And if you're worried then about what my identity is, I find my identity in you. That's what the covenant is. God's saying, you, Abraham's family, Israel, you are my community. Humanity is my image. And you're my community. And I have brought, folded you into my identity. And so I'm associated with you. You're associated with me. Now, that's a very interesting concept. It's a breakthrough. It's phenomenally a fresh way of thinking. Mm -hmm. But like any paradigm changes, Israel had trouble navigating it. How do you start thinking differently? People experience this, I'm sure, in your experience, when people come out of Hinduism and come into Christianity. Everything doesn't just fall into place right away. There's all kinds of ideas that have to be reinvented and, and reshaped and revised because it's a totally different way of thinking about the world and about our place in it. That's the challenge the Israelites had, and it didn't come easily. That's why they keep worshiping other gods as time goes on. They just can't mm -hmm. figure out this worshiping one god thing. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful uh, insight that people didn't know about this um, concept of mono, monolatry, as you said, monolatry, right? Right. Yeah, right. they, so they wouldn't act. think that way. Now, you know, it, that idea works in kingship. You know, mm -hmm. if a king took a vassal, uh, at that point, the vassal would have to be exclusively loyal to that king. You can't be a vassal to a number of kings. Okay, so 
the covenant uses this kingship model when God says you're to worship only me. You know, a king who says you're my vassal and you have to be faithful to me, that doesn't deny that there are other kings. It just says your responsibility is to be faithful to me. And the covenant works on that model, more like a kingship model, so that Israel could understand the idea that they are to be loyal and faithful to Yahweh alone without really addressing, oh, but there are other gods out there. Doesn't bother with that. Okay, that's for a later development to take place. Okay, absolutely. This makes sense, a lot of sense. So it was so, um, this interview at the talking is so new for me, the insights you shared with me. So what would what advice would you give to the uh, young Christian or Christian youth in this internet age where they are influenced by cultures, philosophies, and other worldviews? We want to know God. And our only access to him is through the Bible. So if you want to know God and encounter God's story and try to understand his plans and purposes and what revelation he has given of himself, that's where we have to get it. So it becomes very important for us to read the Bible. At the same time, we know that people can read the Bible incorrectly. It's easy to make mistakes. We all do. It's easy to miss something. It's easy to misinterpret something. So my advice is use every tool at your disposal to advise you, to guide you. Uh, internet sources are not always great sources for understanding the Bible because you can find almost anything out there. So my advice is to uh, try to tap into sources that you have some reason to believe are reliable, uh, that can help guide you to understand. Um, it's very difficult to just figure out how to interpret the Bible all on your own. We should be interpreting in community. Okay, and therefore, whether it's Bible studies or in churches or uh, however we do it, uh, to, to interpret in community, even the the best scholars need to interpret in community. And so that's something that we all should be doing. None of us has kind of a straight line track to the truth of God. We just try to understand it the best we can. As we read the Bible, one thing that I would advise being cautious about um, is just kind of grabbing a sentence and giving it whatever meaning occurs to us at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. We have... if. If the Bible is to have authority, we have to be accountable, accountable to what the writers, the narrators, the authors, the compilers, accountable to what they intended. We can't just take it and make something different out of it. I talk about it as being tethered. We're tied to the biblical text. We can't just launch out on our own. And so we want to track with the authors of Scripture. Um, and I think often Christians have had a tendency just to isolate phrases, isolate verses. And then before you know it, we're giving them meaning that they never had. And when when it's just our meaning that we're putting on a text, what happens is that we're short circuiting the whole authority thing. If it's got authority, it's got to be something that's outside of me. 
got to be something that's inherent in it. And the minute we impose ourselves on that text, uh, we risk forfeiting its authority. And this is a classical advice that first read the Bible and find the reliable sources to interpret it. And and more and also find the communities who can interpret the bible for you so i think yes. this is a classical advice and it was a wonderful talking to you uh, thank you once again for giving your time you're quite welcome very nice to talk with you best wishes blessings